Hey folks, welcome back to another episode EMS on the Mountain. You got Mike and Sean once again, and today we're finishing up our The Gear We Use series. So this will be episode number three in the series. And this is kind of the catch-all of a lot of the kit that we carry, maybe don't carry. Again, you heard us talking about this when we talked about backpacks and medular medical bags. We use a lot of modular components for Mike and I in our setups. And so a lot of this stuff will be found in, in some of those modular kits. So this isn't stuff that we carry every day, every mission, all the time with us. That would just be absurd, large, and heavy. And as Mike has mentioned more than once, I'm getting old and I don't want to carry heavy stuff all the time. Yeah, he's really old. And I'm not that old, despite my youthful appearance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So with that... Well, let's start at the top, dude. Yeah. So up at the top, we've got things like knives and multi-tools. Right. This is, uh, I would say in the wilderness environment, this is much more applicable than when you and I are on urban ambulances. I don't, I don't think I ever to, use a knife on an urban ambulance. That's the thing is I don't need to be pulling out my four inch bench made auto folder on the ambulance. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. If you want to carry a knife with you because it makes you feel better. I mean, great. I've found zero reason to ever have a knife on me, uh, in the front country in an urban ambulance EMS role. Mm-hmm. shears all day long because that cuts everything I needed to cut, especially because I either have X shears or some raptors on me and they will cut all of the things I need to cut. Now, backcountry, same thing. There's not always a huge need for necessarily a knife or a multi-tool per se, but I will say where they become useful is if you're having to do those emergency or even semi-pre-planned overnight bivouacs and you have to be cutting some paracord to be stringing up your shelters, your tarps, sharpening sticks for your makeshift, little tent stakes and things like that. That's when you're going to want those. So cutting up my cheese block. That's a nice yeah, well, yeah. for food. Exactly. Yeah. Cutting Super your cheese, important. your big stick of, of cured yeah, my, meat for dinner. My, uh, my charcuterie board, laying that out That's nicely right. for the evening under the tarp, under the stars. Yes. Some of you are laughing, but these are things we've done. Yeah, this, this has actually happened. Um, uh, because you yeah. have a much better tool on in general, and you're typically going to get a knife with them, is a multi-tool. Yep. Uh, pliers of a multi-tool, some of the screwdrivers and such. You'd be amazed at the places that you need those sorts of things in the backcountry. Yeah. Well, uh, but I've never honest, found a need for a big-ass knife. No, certainly not. Mike and I and our former, when we were search and rescue volunteers with a, one of the groups out here, a lot of guys carried a larger fixed blade knife for emergency survival purposes. And sure, if you're doing like bushcraft kind of work, a larger fixed blade knife is can be invaluable, super handy, not something you really need. Just get a good multi-tool, right? That's going to take care of you probably 98% of your time. Yep. There might be that rare occasion that the bear's coming and you're going to want your like 12-inch Rambo fixed blade. Good luck. Yeah, but then your days are numbered and that's, I mean, yeah. well, it's kind of come to an end. Yeah. So no, it's been a good run. Just accept it for what it is. Yeah. So a good multi-tool. Handy to have. Clipping fish hooks. Yeah. Yep. Improvising shelter materials. Things like that. All right. So next up, stove and a cup. I put these two together because if I've got a stove and I don't have anything to put with it to boil water or heat things up with, kind of defeats the purpose, right? Uh, a lot of options out there. Jet boil is probably one of the more popular ones. They do make mm-hmm. a much smaller version now, which is nice. I think right now I'm using a small, it's, I think, it, I think, geez, I don't know who makes it, MSI maybe, mm-hmm. the soloist or the micro soloist. It's a small yep. aluminum cup and I use the MSR pocket rocket stove. Small, okay. it's compact, fits inside the cup. Actually, I think I have a canister of fuel that goes in the cup along with some, usually I'll stuff a couple of packets of the cocoa or something in, on top of that. The and cocoa. Then, yeah. And uh, a little flint and steel to spark the flame with that one. Or start another survival fire if needed, although not yet. Has that been an actual requirement? No. And then, uh, yeah, I'll keep the stove, comes out its own little plastic case, and I'll keep that to the side with it. But they come as a bundle inside one stuff sack. So I yeah, like to do I'm, that. Uh, I'm carrying something similar. I think I have the MSR stove in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the MSR version of a jet boil, whatever yep. that's called. I can't remember why I picked it. It had a particular feature that I liked that really jagged my wires, so to speak, but I can't remember what it was. I've seen some folks that carry the, what are they called? The solo stove where you twigs and sticks and stuff. I have one of those, but it's not efficient for rescue. So I carry the canister of fuel. I carry the stove, get it lit up, get the heat going, get the fluids going. 
I do consider a stove and a cup part of the quintessential equipment that I pretty much always want to have unless it's really, really hot out. Yeah. But even if it's getting to be after dark in the middle of August in Virginia, I may well want to have a stove so that I can make uh, even ramen or something for sustenance mm-hmm. overnight as well. Yeah, uh, true kind story. of depends on where we are. But I do consider the stove in a cup. Typically, a jet boil with the fuel canisters is going to be best for rescue. You don't want to be spending a lot of time heating stuff up. I don't, in today's day and age, I do not want to be messing with liquid fuel stoves. Yeah. Um, when I go up in the mountains, very rarely nowadays, but expeditions are where you want liquid fuel. Anything in a, in a general continuous US in the summer, the canisters are the way to go. Yep, I agree. And yeah, saying so the canisters, like I carry just the little small MSR ones. Mm-hmm. That, that will get plenty of cups of liquid boiled up for the evening. I will say I also do carry a separate cup. So like my little aluminum cup for boiling of the water comes with a neoprene sleeve. I can slide over that. But then I actually have a separate plastic camping coffee cup that I can hand to the patient, right? So yep. I want hot fluids. Patient might want hot fluids. I have two cups just because I'm not, I don't know you. I'm not sharing my <laughs> cup with you, right? Yeah. Uh, just so, for note, I looked it up. It's the, it's the Windburner PAS, the Windburner mm-hmm. personal stove system. Uh, yeah. I picked it because of its wind. It's got the MSR has a proprietary wind mesh thing for yeah, use yeah. in windy environments. And as we mentioned in the last episode, sometimes we end up above tree line. Yeah. I like it for that purpose. Just like the jet boil, everything packs away inside the canister or inside of the, the cooking pot. So it's a great option as well. Yep. All uh, right. What's next? Tarps. A tarp. Yeah. A lot of different options here. Heavier weight, lighter weight. And when we say tarp, we're not talking about a big poly nylon blue tarp from Walmart, right? This is something that's going to be fairly sizable, but lightweight and durable enough for you to take in the backcountry in your backpack to build shelter primarily for your patient. If you have to stay outside hunched up in your raincoat and get wet or stay a little colder, that's your problem. But the tarp is really built or carried to provide shelter for your patients, right? Mike and I generally don't put one up unless rain is likely Mm -hmm. just because there's not always a lot of places to get one strung up. Sometimes you have to work with where your patient is at, not where you'd like them to be. And that doesn't always allow for setup of a tarp, right? It's something you should absolutely consider. It can also double up and be used if you're having to do the hypothermia wrap kind of thing for your patients as well. If you're trying to put on that outer waterproof vapor barrier type layer, using that tarp can be beneficial to you. They're an absolute necessity. I like the little bit heavier ones from, what is it, Wilderness? No, we talked about it's the Survive Outdoors Longer guys. Yeah, the sole ones. Yep. Um, That's the way to go in my opinion. You get the radiance of the, the aluminum side. It's a heavier duty. They tend to put up with abuse. Yep. I also have a really cool shelter from Kifaru that's actually made for extended backcountry. Uh, I've only ever played with it. I've not yet had a time where we needed it, but it does pack down nice and small. I don't think they make them anymore, but it's basically a, a hunting backcountry kit with, it's a one pole. Um, mm. Oh yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. I can't think of, I can't think of the name for it, but it's just a, you know, it's a triangular shelter that tapers at the feet. Just enough to get you out of the environment. Haven't had to use it in a rescue yet, but that is a thing I, I keep around. Yeah. I, uh, the Kelty Noah's tarp. Mm-hmm. Handy. They have different sizes. Make sure you get at least the mid-sized one. The little one doesn't do well covering a patient. A lot of those were designed just as sunshades or to put over a hammock. I do have a, a poly-shaped hammock tarp that I like to use as well because it's pretty multi-purpose, provides good coverage. But uh, yeah. yeah, a good lightweight, preferably waterproof people. Tarp yeah, water to protect your patient. I mean, the whole reason of putting that tarp up there is to, uh, you might need it for sun protection, maybe, depending on where you're at, what's going on. But really, it's keeping the, the weather off of your patients. And it, it's, it's worth note. Sean and I talk a lot about, oh, if we have to bivouac, it's important to understand that we bivouac occasionally because of the risk to rescuers to get someone out. Mm-hmm. It is not because it's a regular occurrence. So a lot of folks may think, well, I don't need a tarp, like we're going to be getting them out right now. But if it turns out you're one of the early responders and this person's already been exposed for a while or they've been sitting in the same place for a while and it's raining or it's sunny and it's beating down on them, just that little bit of protection from the environments for the period of time while it, that it can take to get rescuers mobilized can make a big difference in the patient's outcome, right? And the, how sick they get. If they're laying there with a broken leg and they've been laying in the sun, 
well, that can cause problems as well. Now you've got secondary problems to deal with, like dehydration and sunburn. Yeah. If it's raining, right, and it's going to be another hour before people get there, let's get them under some cover so that they can start rewarming and, and do what we can to keep them comfortable until those rescuers get there. And a tarp is a, it's a really critical piece of that equation to provide that, that level of uh, protection and care. Yep. Yeah. And tied right to that, paracord, paracord or some sort of utility, small type cordage used to help facilitate your shelter building. Uh, mm-hmm. That's really, a. I mean, you might need some like Mike and I have cut some into lengths and we'll talk about this in our next little item too, but hanging chem lights, hanging yeah. IV bags off trees. Mike and I both also carry the SOAR Rescue Scorpion. Yeah, it's uh, a great piece of kit. IV bag hanging device, which it, it really is a good piece of kit. Let you hang multiple bags. Not that it happens a lot, but you might have just a bag of fluid and you might have another drip with something else for pain management or sedation. So it's good to be able to hang a couple of bags off a device designed for that. And they're lightweight. It's a good piece of gear. I like them. That's not on our list, but yeah, the Soul Rescue Scorpion, good piece of gear. So paracord, handy. Uh, not much to say about that. There's a lot of different uses. If you want to get into the survival world of stuff, you know, I mean, there's any number of things you can do with it, different types, right? I think right now the general multi-purpose cordage I carry, I forget who makes it, but it's not paracord in the true sense of paracord. It's actually more like a heavy-duty boot lace type material, all nylon, but so you can't pull out like inner strands to do any emergency sewing or suturing, but that's not but something you I'm doing do with it, it anyway. Say, but that's not something I'm doing anyway. So yeah, I'm I'm uh, as long as it's five fifty cord ish, right? Yeah. Something with a core and a strand, it's going to be fine. We're not rappelling right. on it. We're not doing yeah. cool guy stuff on it. It's it's honestly for me, it's building shelter, right? One other small use tied in with the next item on our list: chem lights, right? So you can use it to build one of the greatest nighttime signaling devices ever. Use about three foot of paracord tied into a chem light of choice. Usually the green ones, the bright ones. Start spinning that sucker around. Helicopters will see you. Mm -hmm. Other ground assets, if they have line of sight, they will see you. Good signaling device. Um, Sometimes you have to mark a path down to where you went with your patient. So if you're that first person in chem lights, and Mike and I had to do this on one particular patient because they fell. They were already off trail a little bit, messing around, and then took a fall and were farther off trail. And so we had to mark the departure point where the other rescuers knew where to turn off trail to start making their way down to us so that we could affect the rest of the rescue. So chem lights can be handy. I think I only carry maybe two, maybe three max. I don't carry like a box of 12 or anything. I just carry a couple just because they can be handy. And I got to be honest, in that rare instance where you might bivouac, think of it as a nightlight. Some patients just feel a little more comfortable if they have that little glow of a light hanging next to them because then the bears don't attack or something. I don't know, but yeah, it's just are, a little bit of a super psychological handy. piece. I prefer the white ones, mm-hmm. but they aren't as visible from as far as way as the green ones. Lots of uses for them. If you're going to buy them, you don't need to go get the super hefty duty military grade ones, but make sure they're at least eight hour sticks. Yeah. Uh, you'd be amazed how quickly the, uh, there's actually a half-life to the chemical reaction that causes a chem light to burn. And if you get, if you get four-hour sticks, you're going to get two hours out of them. If you get six-hour yeah. sticks, you're going to get four hours. And if you get 12-hour sticks, you're going to get six or seven hours out of them. Yeah. Um, they do deprecate over time. The big thing we use them for is uh, path marking in the dark. Yep. After, you know, Once you get off trail and you find your patient, and oftentimes we'll have people that have fallen somewhere. We'll talk about headlamps in a minute and lights on hole. But using chem lights from, to hang from trees from one point to the next so that you can look and see where the next light is and head in that direction is yeah. invaluable when you're trying to get rescuers vectored into a particular rescue. Can save you a lot of time. Yep. You know, instead of shouting and whistles and flashlights blinking, a couple of chem lights hanging. So next one, and we're going to group both of these together, but some sort of ground pad for your patient. And I personally like to have another small one. We'll call it a sit pad, one of the smaller ones. Some sort of closed cell foam for you and your patient, right? You definitely need one for your patient. You need to get them insulated up and off the ground, patient comfort, et cetera. We've had this discussion on numerous other podcasts. Go back to hypothermia especially, right? You need to insulate your patient from the ground, even in the summer months. Get them up off the hot ground, get them up off the cold ground. You should have some sort of pad for your patient to either sit down or lay on, or maybe even lean up against on the rocks, make them a little more comfortable. Yep. And with that, I like to carry one of the small... Z fold. It's not actually made by the same folks that make those. Little, it's a small sit pad, 
But I have found like if I have to sit for even just taking a break while hiking in or training or with the patient, it's good to have something for me to sit on as well, insulate myself because I'm still going to lose heat through rocks if I still have to sit on them. And let's be honest, we've talked about this with knee pads and personal gear. If I have to be kneeling at a patient's side on some really not pleasant rocky ground, if I can put one of those just up underneath my knees while I'm sitting there doing work, it just makes it more comfortable for me and allows me to focus more on the patient than my own discomfort. Yep. Perfect. Yeah, not much to be said. Plus, I can use my sit pad if I do have find myself in that emergency bed where I at least provide a little bit more insulation of my torso. Not a lot, but... I've actually recently dug out Thermo... I don't know if they still make them. Thermorest used to make a sit pad that was inflatable yeah. that rolled up real nice. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've actually pulled that out and put it in my pack again recently because of its space. Now, it doesn't provide as much environmental protection on whole as a closed cell phone pad if it's cold because it's full of air, but... It packs up light. It's a good kneel board or a good sit board for the mm-hmm. patient. I think Sean and I are both carrying them now. It stays in the pack all the time. Like it's oh, yeah. just a super useful piece of equipment. Yep. So next topic, which nobody who goes to do wilderness EMS or anybody who spends any time in the backcountry should ever be without, and that is lights. For the most part, it's going to be headlamps. I think Mike and I both have a handheld light. I think we only carry about one these days. I do have a larger, bigger, brighter monster. If I'm actually doing nighttime SAR, like no kidding, search operations, so I can shine more of a floodlight around looking for mm-hmm. people who might be lost or injured. But for the most part, it's a good handheld and multiple headlamps. Uh, I probably have no less than three headlamps when I head into the backcountry, and at least one set of spare batteries, probably two, most likely. It's just you need light, and there's no way around it. You're going to find yourself in the dark eventually. And if you only bring headlamps when you think it's going to be dark, that means it's daylight when you left. It's going to be dark when you finish the rescue and you don't have a headlamp. And that's really shame on you for not being prepared. It's a key component of patient care in the backcountry. You've got to have a headlamp. And you need to have at least one backup and a spare set of batteries. Yep. Headlamps are important. The red light on the headlamp is important. If we know where we're going, there isn't a lot of need to burn a lot of light, especially if you know the trails. Yep. But the ability to search is important. Having a handheld light is important. I carry one of the, I forget who makes it, but it's just a small pocket light that uses CR-123 batteries. We haven't really talked about batteries, but I've standardized on CR-123 for the most part. I think Sean's pretty much standardized in double A's. I don't know. He might be a 123 man as well, but I try to stick to the same set of batteries as much as possible so that my spare batteries fit any of my equipment that requires batteries. But a small handheld light for the purpose of looking around and then a headlamp, a backup headlamp, and then another headlamp and or batteries are critical. This is not an environment where you want to get caught without light. Yeah. Just is. Yeah. And I usually, and there should be, I'm going to have to inventory before we start this next season here. I usually always carry a headlamp tucked into my actual med bag as well. Yep. I do too. Just on the off chance that for whatever reason, when I, you know, if I de- separate from my main backpack, that no matter what, at least when I have to do patient care, there's at least one headlamp with me. So, yep, that is what it is. I always have at least two headlamps in my kit and then batteries as well. Yeah. So, and I, I guess this kind of segues into something. It's not really on our list, but things like chest harnesses, particularly for radios, is why most people wear them. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something Mike and I have also gone through a fair number of iterations on i got a lot of them right i think we're both back to carrying using the contera tool chest radio harness yep i think we keep going away from it and then we keep going back to it yeah it's just it's we've got we've used hill people gear of different sizes things like that but good things but you know what are you going to carry inside of that i like the the contera one the tool chest because it allows me to actually carry a multi-tool and a little sub pouch that was designed to carry things like multi-tools yep I found with slight modification, you can get the the new Leatherman Raptor, like I forget what the response shear is, not the full Raptor shear, but the smaller one. Mm-hmm. I can actually make it fit in the other smaller, what they, I think they advertise it as, as a glove pouch. So I can mm. make it actually slide in there. So those shears can actually slide in there. I don't think they're going to live in there, but they fit. They fit. Um, but what else is in there is a headlamp and a full set of spare batteries. So that's just along with a notebook, some pens and a couple of other ancillary administrative items that I like to carry. So having, which is why most of us, or most of us, at least me and Mike, that's usually where we carry at least our number one headlamp is with our chest harnesses. 
Yep. Because then every time you go in the backcountry, you strap it on with your radio. There's a headlamp automatically right there. And then there's usually one or two in the backpack and one in the bed kit. So, yep. That's exactly how I roll. <laughs> and then what we're talking about chest harnesses, a lot of, depending on where you work, what you do, scope of practice, et cetera. I know some guys end up putting like other narcotics inside their chest pouch. So it's always like right with them on their body all the time, which is not necessarily a bad thing. If you have, if you've like, say you've drawn up hundred mics of fentanyl, you've given 50, what do you do with that syringe that's still got 50 in it? Because you're going to give it eventually. It's not like you're going to waste it. End up capping those, put them in your chest harness so you know right where it's at. You know, inside my meds kit, I have a little label so I can pull it out, put a bright orange sticky on it, right? Fentanyl. So I know what's in there. So I don't mess that up. But there's a lot of other stuff that you can put in there. What you put in there and what you carry, it's wholly up to you. I'm certainly not going to tell you you need to be carrying a chest harness. Even if you don't have a radio, a lot of guys still like to have them to put stuff in, whether it's GPSs, compasses, headlamps, pens, pencils, whatever it might be, right? Some guys like to carry a small trauma medical setup inside a chest harness. Yep. I have not run the call yet where I had to immediately needle decompress somebody with a kit out of my chest harness. Because my no, med- it turns out if they're having that problem, they're probably going to be expired by the time you get there. <laughs> yeah, let's be honest. And let's just call my, it what it my, is. My bed bag is right there, and I can just open up my airway section and get to work. So, uh, yep. but it is what it is. So, radio chest harnesses or chest harnesses in general is another piece of kit that might be handy for you. Uh, where else? We, oh, so this can be a controversial topic depending on where you're at. But this is another one of those modular items that Mike and I have to keep handy, and that's tech rescue stuff. Rope, how much rope? Mike and I basically done a good map study at most of the, we'll call it high points, and looked at the average length of rope we would need to affect most, at least patient access, not necessarily like a full rescue system where we're going to do a haul or a lower, anything like that, but purely patient access. And that's kind of where we've determined how much rope we need to carry in a small kit with us. Your harness, are you going to carry a full a harness loaded up with full tech rescue kit? Or are you going to pare that down to what is most likely going to be necessary for patient access? I think Mike and I are somewhere in the middle of that. We're not um, carrying the full Monty necessarily, but we're not going with just like two carabiners and some sort of dissension device. Now, and it's probably time for me to, to mention here that I do, I've been teaching vertical work for a long time mm-hmm. uh, on, top of, on top of the medical world. That, that's kind of my jam. I strongly adhere to the model of if you go down a rope, you got to be able to go back up the rope. What we do not carry with us as a general loadout is the equipment needed to build a haul system. The system we operate within has specific packs for that purpose. They're in a vehicle that is specific built for bringing those things. If we need to move an entire Stokes with a patient and a provider, that equipment comes separately. That gets hauled in by secondary responders as typically as the primary medical providers on a call. We're going in quick. So we're going with the equipment to get us to a patient and operate safely and potentially secure the patient. That's typically a rope bag or two harness, the ability to go ups and downs the ropes with the various equipment needed. A helmet we'll talk about in a minute. And that's about it. So we need to build an anchor. We need personal access equipment. And then the extrication equipment comes later. Yep. And that's really about it. And I will say me personally, in my pack all the time, I certainly don't carry all the tech rescue stuff because it's heavy. Even if you're carrying 100 feet of rope plus your harness, carabiners, et cetera, all those things Mike mentioned, it adds up, right? But I mm-hmm. usually always carry at least a 20 to 30 foot section of tubular webbing. I have a small, I think it's 30 foot long section of like sterling power cord so that I could use that to tie in myself. Even if it's a little bit sketchy, I can find myself a small anchor tie off so that at least I know I'm not going to go falling should something weird happen. Yeah, I falling is bad use that to secure a patient so they don't continue to fall, things like that. And I have a couple of smaller, compact, still rated carabiners that I carry, but that's it. Like just, I don't care anything crazy, a little bit of cordage, some webbing, just because I've had to use that to assist with tying patients into litters when (laughs) something else came up missing and a couple of small carabiners, but that's it. And that's really, truly an emergency use kind of thing. Uh, And depending on what you got, that could also be used and fed into your shelter building setup as well. Who knows, right? Yep. But I don't carry a lot. And again, it comes in a small stuff sack. Doesn't weigh a lot. Doesn't take up much space. But I've found I use those quite a bit. uh, More than I would thought I would, which is the only reason I keep carrying them. And so tied in with Tech Rescue, which can be very popular amongst SAR teams, a Mm -hmm. little too popular in my opinion. 
they get a little enthusiastic about wearing it, and that is your helmet. Mike and I do carry a helmet in our packs pretty much all the time. And that's simply because if it does turn out to be a tech rescue thing, and even if we didn't necessarily need it initially, we might need it when we get there. We have found ourselves hoisting with patience when we weren't planning to, and you need to have your helmet and some other kit, right? So yep. we, do have, we do have our helmets in our packs. We are not the guys that you're going to see walking down trail with a Stokes basket wearing a helmet for the sake of wearing a helmet, right? I think we're both, uh, I know I am for sure. I think Mike's wearing one now too, both wearing Team Wendy SAR helmets. Yes. Which do provide some lateral impact protection vice a normal climbing helmet, which is designed almost exclusively from top-down impacts from falling rocks or other climbers. And we can get into the SAR teams just walking around in flat woods with helmets on and why they're doing that. We're not going to. It's I get why they do it. I don't feel it's necessary. I don't expect anything to fall from the sky. Yeah. I mean, onto my head in normal operations. Yeah. Tree branches fall. We get it. But anyway, that's enough on that. So, helmets, yeah, we carry a helmet. And if you used specialized helmets like the Team Wendy or something and you don't have the ability to put a headlamp on your helmet or a light on your helmet, you're again in the wrong. So, make sure that you have, I have, I'm sure Mike does too, actual <laughs> lights made to go in the mounting system there. Yeah, that's one of the advantages of the Team Wendy. Plus, I have the Otherwise, adapter. I can use a regular headlamp in there as well. So, yeah, Petzl makes the adhesive modular functions as well. Oh. Mm-hmm. Those are great. I don't love. It's fine. It works, but the putting the bungee in the clips on the headlamp, like a traditional climbing helmet. Yeah, you really need to dedicate the headlamp to that purpose because getting it in and out when you need to is just a time suck. Yep. Um, but those work just fine as far as once the headlamp is on the helmet, they work great. I just am not a big fan of taking them in and out all the time. Yeah, it's like one of those, just if you're going to have that system, put that on your helmet and that's just the headlamp that lives with your helmet all the time. All right, so kind of tied in with the helmet and that you never know when you might suddenly have to be getting hoisted by a helicopter or needed is some eye protection. This is largely overlooked, in my opinion. I agree. And I will say that if you're in my instance, people... These are readers, not for bad vision. So my iPro is bifocal, right? So I've got normal lenses up top and then down below is the magnified lens so that when I'm looking down doing close-in work, either IVs, med administration, et cetera, I can see with the magnification I need. Otherwise, I can just look straight ahead and have my normal vision. And when you're working around helicopters, even if you're not hoisting, but if you're working around helicopters or it's really windy and you've got a lot of dirt and grit blowing around, being able to toss on some eye protection can be very beneficial. So this is something that just lives in my pack along with the next item, hearing protection. Just some simple foam earplugs handy to have, especially if you might end up with working around helicopters or having to get hoisted up into one. Having some ear protection ready to go is nice. And anybody, especially if we've got any listeners out there that are helicopter EMS, critical care medics flying around, they will tell you that Sedated patients who suddenly get put in helicopters because of all the sensory overload that can go on with that, the noise, the vibration, et cetera, putting earplugs in your patients who are getting hoisted, even if they're not like sedated, is nice. And it's a good thing to do for just patient care. Even if it's a fractured leg that they're getting hoisted out on, giving them some hearing protection so it's not this big, loud, screaming mess when they get inside the helicopter is a nice thing to do. So I carry simple sets. Uh, Okay. So. Some less sexy stuff, snacks and water. Snacks, do you, super important. Do you, do you have to bring snacks? No. Should you bring snacks? Yeah, everybody needs to eat. Yep. And I, I got to be honest, I don't always bring snacks for patients. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. It really depends on what I've got handy at the time. There are always a couple of items that are specifically carried for me because if I have to leave and for our fellow EMS providers, you know that the calls always come when you want to eat your full meal, lunch, dinner, breakfast. You're going to miss it, especially if you're on that extended patient contact time, having some snacks with you and not just a Snickers bar, you know, but having actually something a little bit substantial, a little protein, some of that salty goodness, trail mix, et cetera. It's not going to fill you up like a full meal. I'm not carrying that much, but you got to be able to maintain a certain level of energy to do your job. So having some stuff with you, if you want to bring some things for your patient to eat, that's cool. I think we talked about it before. Be very cautious with what you bring. You have to be aware that you might be, you can't just throw a bag of trail mix at a patient with a severe nut allergy. That's not something you want to have to deal with as well. No. So use some caution with that. That's why I don't always take stuff for patients is I really don't know what I'm running into. 
and I'm kind of mean when it's like, well, you're in the backcountry. I assume you have a backpack with your own set of water and food, even though I know most of our visitors don't, which is why they're calling for me. But have it water, even in the summer months, I know I don't carry as much as I should be. I'm usually two bottles, analogy, yeah. two liters, and that's about what I carry. The only exception to that is if we know it's later in the day and there's a good chance we're going to be staying overnight or it's going to be an extended period where I might need to brew up something hot for myself or my patient, that's when I'll load up some extra water. But as a general rule of thumb, I don't bring extra water for patients unless I really think that's going to become an issue. I already have a lot of extra stuff with me. They may or may not have an extra bottle that I'll toss in my pack for them. It really all depends on the day. Yeah, I don't. I probably don't carry enough water either, quite Honestly, if somebody is so severely dehydrated that fluid is the thing they need, they're getting it via IV for me. I am carrying, uh, between the two of us, Sean and I have two liters of fluid as an initial start. A couple extra water bottles might go in the top of the pack, the plastic bottles. I usually carry two liters total for my consumption needs for a standard hot, sunny day. But the big way I've always kind of approached this is staying ahead of hydration when I'm not on the rescue so that yep. I'm hydrated when I go out the door so that I don't have to carry six, seven, eight liters of water. It's just too much water. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. And I do have my little bag of, we'll call it emergency supplies, which does have some water treatment tablets in it that if I do find yep. myself in that truly extended scenario and no water, then I do have the yeah. ability to treat some water. It's going to taste like ass, but at least it's clean and won't give me the jardias. Yep. Yeah, so carry a couple liters at a minimum. Your environment's going to dictate. If you're working the Grand Canyon, two liters is probably not enough for the day. So. <laughs> yeah, especially yeah, the Grand Canyon in August, not so much. Not so much. Yeah, All right, bivy pretty gear. Much, pretty much what it is, yeah. So bivy gear, right? The overnight stuff. <laughs> this... Talk about another place where I've spent a lot of money trying a lot of things. Yeah, I really haven't, yeah. to be honest with this, right? So where Mike and I do our primary response, it can get down to freezing, certainly in the winter months, below freezing. Yeah, Um, because it's in the mountains, it gets the brunt of the weather and it gets the ice storms, it gets the snow. Generally speaking, during those worst months, we're not up doing our thing because there's no visitors, right? There are occasionally, right? but for the most part, during the harshest parts of the year, we are not on duty up there. But if we're doing rescues out there, we're called in for a particular purpose. We're not kind of waiting. Yeah, Yeah, we're not. It's not just a standby duty weekend waiting for something to happen. It's a it's more of a call out response like, hey, we've got this thing. Can you come? Yeah. And then we do or don't based on all the other factors that go into that. But yep. so this is something that we probably both carry year round almost all the time. It just the density of it will vary. So I will almost always have an emergency bivy sack. Again, one of the SOL bivvies. I use the uh, slightly bigger one with the zipper just because it's reusable. It's nice. It actually works really well. That just lives in my pack. It doesn't weigh much. It does not take up much space. That's always in there year round. So even in the summer months, if it's out there sprinkling and raining, it's going to be probably too warm to be in it, but I can climb in it and be dry and be comfortable through the night if I have to. Yep. Or if it suddenly came up like that and we weren't ready for it for a patient, I could stuff the patient in there. Again, multiple uses. There for a disposable bivy, they're definitely on the more expensive side. But when it comes to like a Gore-Tex bivy sack made by... OR makes a lot of good bivy sacks or some other companies mm-hmm. considerably cheaper, right? 40, 50 bucks, vice 200 bucks. So it is what it is. I do have a full size nylon actual bivy sack that's designed as a bivy sack, not for an emergency purposes uh, that I have with my modular kit that if I think this is going to be a full on overnighter and we think it's going to happen that way, I'll take that one with me just because it's a bit roomier. It is more durable and it's a little more comfortable. It breathes mm-hmm. a little bit better. So it's good. And then the summer months, I'm not bringing any extra sleeping bags or anything with me. It's if I'm, if I have to slide in that bivy sack, that's going to be more than enough to get me through a summer night or late spring, early fall evening. It'll be cool. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be maybe as comfortable as I would necessarily want to be, but that's also why I'm not out there. I'm not out there to sleep comfortably through the night. It's on log. I have a patient, right? That's the priority. So being a little uncomfortable, maybe being a little cooler than I would prefer, it's there. In the summer months or in the colder months, as we get in towards winter, I definitely up my game and bring a smaller lightweight sleeping bag. It's a synthetic bag. It does have a wind-resistant, water-resistant shell built into it already, but it still generally will slide inside that bivy sack. It's the one I've used when we've gotten down at that freezing level and Mm -hmm. inside that bivy sack, it's worked out, but it 
packs up really pretty small. It's fairly light uh, and it gets it done. It's not as ideal as if I was carrying a zero degree rated, super nice down bag with me, right. but it definitely gets it done. And I know you're pretty outfitted pretty similarly. Yeah. The one place that I probably fall down a little bit, and this is where I've, I've spent a lot of money, I've gotten away from using backpacks and I use blankets or whoobies or things of that nature that are more multi-purpose that I can use it to stand up for as a wind shelter. I can use it as a blanket to wrap myself. The one thing I do carry is the sole bivy. I have to buy the tall one because of my height. But I hold on to that as a moisture barrier. I use the three-quarter inch foam cell that I take with mm-hmm. me. And then, as Sean mentioned, I, I honestly do not spend a lot of time caring about bivy stuff because it's mostly for my patients and it's about keeping them warm. I don't think we've had a night where we're laying out in the woods sleeping real hard. We, <laughs> yeah, we no. rotate shifts and you're largely up all night. So I carry, I've got an old whoopee made by Kifaru that was yep. a... A blanket thing that I really like. Uh, it's nice and light. I have some. I've I've stayed away from fleecy type blankets, though. I have mm-hmm. some that I've used before. They just get covered in leaves of dirt. The key is to have some sort of moisture barrier under you. I have been known to use the age old Alpine trick of putting your legs and feet in your backpack, mm. and I use a three quarter pad, and I just try to stay comfortable. I use a lot of my clothing for thermal protection when we're out there. Uh, yep. You know, the puffy jacket and stuff goes on, and then I just use a lightweight or a medium weight cover for warmth. Yeah, I exactly. Don't spend, I, don't, I don't pack up with backpacks and, or excuse me, sleeping bags and, and full-length thermarests and two-inch thick pads. I'm just not doing a lot of sleeping when I'm out there, so it's not a critical <laughs> yeah. piece of equipment. And that's exactly it, right? So for the mo- I think every time we've had to bivouac overnight, we have made our way to the patient. We've decided that, yeah, we're not going to do the carryout tonight for whatever the reason is. Mm-hmm. And we've always had follow-up crews bring us, and they have backpacks that are set up and staged for this with additional bivy kit. And it's usually a heavier weight sleeping bag and a full-length inflatable like thermarest type mat. And that's yep. for the patient, right? And so, because your patient, for the most part, was out for a day hike for us, right? And, and that's specific to where Mike and I are at. We have the vast majority of visitors in this in our region are out for day hikes um, just because the places we work are very close to large metro areas. And so a lot of people that there's not a lot of backpackers. And if we do come across those guys, we use their kit. It's their kit. They're comfortable with it. And they climb in their own sleeping bags and use their own mats. But if they were out for a day hike and they have none of that with them, well, then we have people bring up full length pads and sleeping bags and they bring up one set and it's for the patient. Because the expectation is me, the responder, can be self-sufficient. There is a limited, and I will say very limited, supply of maybe one extra sleeping bag, maybe an extra pad that can be brought. But that's a maybe, right? Because a lot of times what will happen is some of these patients, they might need an air evac. They might need hoisted out just based on where they're at. And so for various reasons, that was the method to be chosen. And it's going to be done the next morning. We end up just leaving them inside those sleeping bags and they get hoisted and flown away with them. And so eventually all that patient gear just disappears through attrition to hospitals because apparently they don't know how to work zippers in the ED. They only cut them off. They cut them off. And so the agencies have to replenish and repurchase those things. And so they generally don't, there's not just boatloads of them and they're not, let's be honest, they're not high quality mountain hardware or somebody else's sleeping bags that are getting used up. They're definitely on that low end. Decent bags going to keep your patient warm, but they're not bringing extra for you. So, right. That's exactly it. And again, as Mike mentioned, especially if you're alone, you're going to be up most of the night. Even if it's, we'll call it a, a BLS low acuity patient, you still have to get up and check on them. You're the provider. It's your responsibility. So, even if it's just get up, walk over, yep, they're breathing. Maybe you can sneaky get a pulse, just a quick check. It might be all you do, but you still got to check on your patient. You're absolutely I, right. And I guess we're just going to leave it there. So overnight gear, whatever suits your environment and your needs, that's what you need to have. Next one, we talked on it a little bit. Trauma shears. This is just something that you're an EMS provider. You need some sort of good trauma shears. And when I say good trauma shears, I mean legitimate good trauma shears. The agency issued, we buy them in bulk for $2 a piece or less. Generally, don't get it done. Nope. And I will say, depending on where you work, the caveat you need to keep in mind is they should also be suitable when doing rope work. Hmm. And by that, I mean, you need to be able to cut a loaded rescue rated rope 
fairly easily or through tubular nylon, et cetera. This is not the situation where you want to be whipping out that giant bench-made auto folder and go, I got this, right? For those that work in the tech rescue environment, you've probably all been beat into your heads that exposed blades like that and tensioned ropes are a recipe for disaster. Mike and I have a picture of one of our fearless leaders doing just that, and we're going to use it to blackmail him. (laughs) But you need to have good trauma shears that can, A, cut through any number of clothing. And, you know, for Mike and I, that includes motorcyclists in their riding leathers, which I know motorcycle guys, I get it. You don't want me cutting through your leathers, but here's the deal. If that's the only way I can get it off without mangling the rest of your body, I'm yeah. sorry. This is happening. So you want so the, the two brands we love, the Raptor shears are kind of the quintessential, I'll call it the standard, the uh, the go-to nowadays for high quality shears. Yep. Uh, the other ones I love that do a great job in my opinion, but they don't fall down are the the X shears. Yep. Yeah. Love those as well. There's other great ones out there, but cheap ones are anything that's gonna be anything where the blades can fold or uh, separate during cutting are not the ones you need. Uh, I use shears more than anything else. I use them all the time. It just, I like the X shears and I like the, uh, uh, I like the Raptors because they fold down even though they're a little heavier. Uh, But those are my go-to. Yeah. And I will tell you just, uh, we had an incident doing some tech work and we got, it came, became an emergent situation where I had to cut a tensioned line to free up the rescuer and whipped out the raptors and it cut without question easy as hell no problem it was the smoothest like i got the we made eye contact and the word was cut it so it was like yep. okay okay snip that was it i know that guy and uh my rest fellow rescuer was free from the hang-up and there was no issues so when i got home from that rescue the next weekend i uh loaded up i think it's an 11 11 mil 11 mm-hmm. maybe 11 5 static rope a fair collection of kettlebells from it. So it was nice and highly tensioned. And I wanted to see which shears were able to do that. The Raptors, without question, cut through it, no problem. X shears, no problem. Because they've got a good, if you've got X shears, you've used them before, you know what I'm talking about. They've got that good, thick, sturdy blade. They've got a great design. Went mm-hmm. through it. And then we went to a bunch of, and I used from several different manufacturers, probably about three or four different, we'll call them standard trauma shears. Mm-hmm. And they will eventually cut through it some taking multiple attempts. Yeah, and as Mike mentioned, you go to do that, get that bite and your the shears, the kind of twist and fold and then your, the two cutting arms spread apart. And it's like, well, that's no good, right? So if you're working, especially in that high angle rope environment, make sure you've got a good pair of shears that can actually, no kidding, cut the rope. You never know when this is going to happen. Yep. And it took a couple of decades before the first time I ever had to legit cut a rope because of a situation. And I was very happy that I had my Raptors handy. It was like, flick them open and snip, no worries. Because before that, I've seen a lot of guys carry, like especially in their chest harness, especially the smaller compact style basic trauma shears, because they're small, they're lightweight, they stick in that pouch real easy. Those, I will tell you, those were the worst. Cutting some jeans off somebody, yeah, great. They'll do no problem, right? You can cut yoga pants all day long with them. Yep. But when you need to cut heavy duty fabrics, cut through a rope, have some good shears. All right, enough on that. Good shears for sure. Yeah. Uh, gloves. Yeah. This is not, this is not optional. <laughs> uh, I personally carry two pairs, sometimes three pair of gloves into the backcountry. That may sound excessive. So I typically have a pair of gloves in my chest rig so that I always have gloves. And these are, I think I have Petzl leather palmed mm-hmm. repelling type gloves there. There's always a pair of gloves on my harness, but I do not want to go digging for the gloves on my harness. And then it turns out when I put my harness on to do rope work, I do not want to be without gloves. So there's always a pair there. And then sometimes depending, uh, there can be an extra spare of mechanic style gloves. Mm -hmm. Actually, I love the mechanic gloves. I think they're called mechanic wear in my pack at my avail at all times. So that if I'm just scrambling, if I need to pull on something, if I need to protect my hands, I'm probably over biased on this, but jacking up your hands in a rescue environment is the one thing you really don't want to do. Do you need those things to do a lot of stuff, whether it's start IVs, pick up stuff, move around, keep your balance? Yeah. So I'm, I probably bias a little too heavy on the protecting my hands a lot, but I do carry two or three pair of gloves at all times. Yeah, no, I'm with Mike. I have at least two. There's one that's always on my radio chest harness and there are a pair of the mechanics wear gloves. And yeah, it's like pretty much anytime we are heading backcountry and it looks like we're going to have to start doing any, we'll call it real work, scrambling through things, having to do a little climbing. 
those come on, just, yeah, protect my hands, give me help with the grip, et cetera. And I find like if I'm helping to carry a litter, like if I'm not the primary responder and I'm just part of the carry team, I just mm-hmm. like the gloves. They just make grabbing hold of that litter and carrying it a little easier as well. You don't want to get blisters and anything crazy from doing simple tasks or just scraping up knuckles as they brush across rocks and trees all the time. So, yep. and then like Mike said, there's always a separate pair clipped to my, my harness just because, yeah, you don't want to pull out that harness and go, crap, where are my gloves? Right. There's yep. always a pair with the harness because just if you got to put on your harness for rope work, gloves just come second nature with that kid. And then something that I've actually find surprising, a lot of backcountry providers only bring one or two pair of, we'll call them nitrile or patient contact type gloves with them. And this is one area where you need a lot, right? Like, and you're working on an ambulance, having a couple of pairs in your pockets or in a pouch on a belt for normal ambulance EMS crew, sufficient. If you need to change out, by then you're probably back in your ambulance and you got boxes of them just on walls in probably two or three different places. In the backcountry, especially if I'm a single responder or I've got somebody with me that's really not medically savvy, they may or may not be an EMT, chances are they're probably not. They're just going to be somebody else who was sent to help me and they may not have a lot of medical stuff. So if I've got bloody gloves and I've got to reach into my med kit and get something else, what do I have to do? I got to take my bloody gloves off, get my kit, get the next thing out I need, put gloves back on because I'm going back into a bloody mess Yep. and do work. And Mike and I, last year, we had that pretty bad trauma case where we were on rope. And so we were switching between nitrile gloves and leather gloves. I love the gloves. I think at one point I had a nitrile on my left hand while starting an IV and I was holding <laughs> yeah. something with a more traditional mechanics wear glove in my right hand because I was trying to keep something stable. So yeah, um, it's... And- yeah, it, it just is, right? You have to have yeah. plenty of latex gloves. I yeah. feel this way in front country too. It enrages me when people put gloves on before they get out of an ambulance. I've ranted about this on the podcast before, but <laughs> all you're doing is touching the outside of the ambulance and then getting all the dirt from the outside of the ambulance and rubbing it all over your patient when you go to provide care. So I'm a big fan of changing gloves on a regular basis, I'm a big fan of not trying to do multiple things with a pair of gloves on. And that means that I need to have plenty of natural gloves in my avail. Yeah, so, there's, no way, there's no resupply in the woods. It's no. you. And, uh, and on that particular call, because in my med kit, what's in there is a Ziploc bag full of gloves. Mm-hmm. And so that Ziploc bag came out, we just kind of opened it up and set it next to the patient. And whenever one of us needed gloves, we would just reach into the bag for a new set of gloves, yep. and, you know, get back. And there's probably a dozen pair of gloves I keep in that thing. And yeah, some people are like, oh my God, why do you carry all those? It's like, dude, because sometimes you got to go through these. It's, you'd be surprised. Sometimes you just need them. It just is. Yeah. Because you got to think, you don't want to be cross-contaminating your patient with your kit with environmental stuff. And Mike and I have also been on calls where we've had two pretty bad patients and we might bounce from one patient to the other for whatever reason. You should probably be switching gloves between patients, especially if there's body fluids involved. Let's be honest, guys. You know, it's like, hey, I'm going to start an IV on this one. Okay, then maybe he'll move on to doing something else and I'll go to start the IV on the next one. I should probably change gloves, right? Yep, that's exactly it. You need to have at least one good pair of leather palm gloves. Well, you don't need to. I will say that mission and your environment, depending, I would recommend a good pair of gloves. Yeah. And you definitely I will say need, you need them if you're going to be getting on rope. You need leather yeah. palm gloves for protection yeah. of moving. Anytime you're doing rope work, absolutely. Any of us that yeah. work in that environment that teach it will tell you that if you're, especially if you're going to be a moving rope of any sort, you better have gloves on. Yep. If you're standing there, you're going to rig an anchor. I don't care. But as soon as you're starting to do any sort of work where you're moving or that rope's moving, you better have some good gloves on and yep. good nitrails. And that's about enough on that. All right, Mike, that's enough on gloves. I think we've yeah. ranted on gloves about all the things. Any other kit that we carry, you carry worth mentioning? I got one nugget for you. I carry one of those black diamonds tent lamps. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what the, like, the little LED lamps. Yeah, little tiny lantern things. We've used it a couple of times. I find that it provides a lot of uh, comfort for the patient if you can hang a general ambient light near them. Because if we're just working under headlamp, it's sometimes easy to forget that all they really see in the dark, if they've been waiting for us in the dark, and let's be honest, in today's day and age, a lot of these folks are just out in the woods with nothing but the flashlight that is built into their cell phone. All we are is a nebulous blob of human with a, a light on our head that's floating around doing things. But sometimes you're just the light glowing in their face yeah. uh, if you're not careful. So by just having an ambient light that provides a little bit of general scene visibility, it provides a lot of comfort for the patient. So I, I don't remember when I started. I started a couple of years ago. It's a, I think it's called a Moji yeah. uh, LED light. But the ability to hang that in the trees a couple of feet off the ground near them gives them a sense of control of their surroundings. 
that yeah. can be very helpful. Yeah, no, that's um, a good idea. That and chem lights are your friend. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually a really good one. I've got a couple of those I should probably consider placing with my kit. Yeah, they're great. Other than that, no, I think we've covered all the, the ins and outs, the nuggets. And uh, as we've said on all the other podcasts, if somebody wants to ask us about a particular kit, if they want to ask us about a, a thing we use, hit us up on social media, send us an email. We have a lot of experience with a lot of kit. We've been buying things yeah. for a long time. We're the reality is Sean and I are basically completely self-funded when it comes to our equipment. And so we've tried a lot of things in pursuit mm-hmm. of perfection. So let us know. We're happy to give you the feedback. You know, there's a lot of folks. I have to accept that there's a lot of folks just getting into the game now. They're in their early 20s. We've been through 20 years of equipment iteration. And uh, we can probably save you some time and effort if you ask us about some things before yeah. you go buy it. Absolutely. I would say just a few key points to kind of wrap up pretty much the whole series, right? All your kit's going to be personalized where where it can be, right? If you have agency-issued stuff that you must have or you must use, it is what it is. But try to personalize your kit for you and your mission as best you can. Because we're talking backcountry, things that are light and compact when possible, do that does come with a cost, but you need to think about it. The big one here, right? And this comes with, Mike and I, we mentioned this before, don't overpack. Just because your backpack can accept more doesn't mean you should just carry more for the sake of carrying more. The whole, well, I might need this one day kind of mentality don't, right? It's like, yeah, one day you might, but the reality is, and every year before we start the season, before our first big duty weekend comes up, I go through all my kit and it's like, wow, I haven't used this in four years. I probably pull it out. It's like, if I haven't used this in four years across the spectrum of rescues and responses we've done, then I probably don't need it anymore. And I get rid of it. You got to be able to do, don't be afraid to get rid of gear and maybe yeah. don't get rid of it, but take it out of your pack. Take it out of you your know? pack. Don't carry the weight. Yeah. Just Keep it handy. Maybe you'll need it, but don't just carry something for the sake of just carrying something. Keep it modular when you can. We've talked about that probably across all three episodes. Yep. Modularity is key. Keeps it easy to move things in and out. Keeps that weight down. And last but not least, don't be afraid to evolve your gear, right? You find something that might be a better fit for you, try it, use it. If it doesn't work, eBay, Facebook Marketplace, you can sell off pretty much everything you ever bought. Probably not going to get all your money back, but you're not going to lose a ton of it. Right. Right. It's just part of playing the game, especially when you're self-funded. You got to evolve, right? You got to try different packs. You got to try different bags. You got to different, if you work tech rescue, different types of harnesses and other gear, the stuff you used to go up, the stuff you used to go down. There's stuff coming out all the time in the world of tech rescue and rope work. Some things you buy. Last year, I bought a a new descent device. Wanted to try it out. It was light. It was small. It was compact. It turned out to be total crap. (laughs) for for what I wanted it to do, right? It had two speeds. It was either stop or all go. There's nothing in between, which that's not beneficial, right? So I sold it. Actually, I returned it because I could. You got to do it. Evolve your gear. Don't be afraid to make changes. Yep. And I think that pretty much covers it. Hit us up if you've got questions. All right. Well, with that, uh, we're going to put this one in the bag. Talk to you A modular bag? Yeah, modular bag. Funny guy. (laughs) That's what I do.